0: Dharma Moon's renowned mindfulness meditation teacher training program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nick Turn and Duncan Trussell.
1: And now move your attention to your heart. This heart, which carries so much longing and love and tears and grief and excitement and delight.
0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. My name is Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast. And we're here today with episode 202 with Jack Cornfield. Jack is someone who many of you already know his work, and it's his third appearance on the Meta Hour. For those who don't know, Jack is a longtime meditation teacher and author. He is one of the most influential meditation teachers in the West. He was part of a, a group of Westerners who went to the East and found the teachings of the Buddha and brought it back to the United States in the early 70s. And he's one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And later went on to also co-found the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. He is just a beloved teacher by so many. His books are wildly influential, have been translated into a bajillion languages. A Path with Heart is perhaps his most popular book. Some of his other titles, one of my favorites, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, which um, I've literally done before, and his latest book, his most recent, is titled, No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Love, and Joy Right Where You Are. So we're just delighted to have Jack back on the podcast, and this conversation is one that is centered around the topic of community. The power of community, the necessity of community, and just the ways that community really support being on a spiritual path and what happens when we don't have it, you know, in these moments like in COVID or just times when community is not that accessible due to the circumstances of our lives. Jack has also recently spearheaded a community building organization along with Tara Brock and a few others that's called the Cloud Sangha. So they'll speak all about that in this conversation and also just tell some stories from the the old days, which is always amazing to hear. So before we get into the episode, a couple announcements. The first of which is that Sharon's new book that's coming out April 11th is now available for pre-order. The title of that book is Real Life, and we're doing a pretty incredible offering, a five-day online summit that is centered around the the teachings that are in that book, and that's running from March 29th to April 2nd, a couple weeks before the book comes out, and features 30 different speakers. Well, it's a little more than 30, 30 30-ish speakers, and it's a whole range of folks. There's Dharma teachers, there's musicians, there's actors, there's creatives of kind of all kinds And just some incredible thought leaders also from the mindfulness movement and beyond. So if you want to learn about the book, if you want to just dive into it, the summit is called Living an Authentic Life. And it's free to join. It's all online. And we're just excited to bring the book to you kind of through this summit And Sharon's also going to be doing a whole bunch of just different events surrounding the book launch, and we're going to be doing a podcast series that starts with our next episode, and the book is really about these larger cycles in life moving from contraction to expansion, and moving from isolation to community. And just those seasons, as you might call them, of life and how we move from those narrow states to more expansive and connected states. So it's a book that I think all of us could use in one form or another, especially as we're emerging out of COVID and redefining what life looks like for so many of us these days. So check it out join if you like it's always a huge support to us for you to pre-order the book publishers love a pre-order and it it actually helps to kind of expand the reach of a book so that's what we have for announcements and without further ado here is this beautiful episode with Jack Cornfield
2: hi jack <laughs>
1: Hi, Sharon. Thank you again? Have oh, great. Always a pleasure. Very sweet. So we've known
2: each other for a very long time now, which is wonderful. And uh, we've seen not only ourselves go through lots of changes, but kind of the world of mindfulness and interest in meditation and what's predominant, what's compelling. That's gone through lots of changes as well.
1: It has. We met in 1974, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that next year will be 50 years. Good Lord. It's hard hard to imagine. Yeah, and mindfulness was then a kind of, in the West, it was kind of a fringe, esoteric, um, not particularly well-known. And now, you know, there's a Starbucks and a yoga studio and some kind of mindfulness thing on every corner. Right. Is that a good thing?
2: Well, it is. It is what it is. Um, I remember your very first retreat that you taught in Felton, California. 19 people, I think it was.
1: Yep. Yes. I remember. Thank you, because you were the manager and Jacqueline was the cook. And what I remember at the end was taking everyone down to the Santa Cruz boardwalk for ice cream. That's right. That's a way to end the retreat. That's the, that's the part that makes me smile.
2: <laughs> which is a great yeah. memory for most of the topic I'd like to try to cover today, which is about community. And, um, you know, I think sometimes you, you and I both practiced uh, very intensively in Asia. Uh, I in, in those days, uh, just in India, later on in Burma as well. And you, I think largely in Thailand and, sometimes people have an image of that practice as being very solitary and isolated. But in fact, there were, there were big community elements to it. My first retreat, for example, which was in 1971 with S.N. Goenka as a teacher was not completely silent. There were days of silence or periods of silence. And I met some of my closest friends on that retreat closest friends still. And so, um, It was a mixture of of, of very intensive application and training of of various techniques and methods that we could take them with us with a lot of confidence and also just the reality of meeting like-minded people and feeling that we're all practicing together. So what was Thailand like in that way?
1: Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Um, There's a kind of historic context or historical context I want to put it in. Um, for people who are listening, um, and that is that when some of us went to Asia and got interested in meditation, we wanted to go also find the real deal, the most intensive, the deepest, how do you transform, because we'd read all those Zen books about, you know, Satori or whatever. Um, And we ended up often at retreat centers, uh, Guenga-led retreats, I was at a a Mahasi retreat center, Mahasi Saido, where you would mostly do individual practice. You might sit in a group on occasion, even at Mahasis, but primarily you would only speak with a teacher about what was happening. And you were very much in an individual development field. And, And we brought that back so that our retreats initially at places like IMS and later at Spirit Rock that was all individual, pretty much. Um, But what we didn't really notice so thoroughly was that the people who went to those retreat centers returned to their towns and villages that were completely enveloped in a Buddhist community. There were temples around. There were other teachers. There were Buddhist holidays. There was the dhana and rituals and ceremonies of giving to the monastics, Um, And receiving teachings, there was the building of community because the temples often were also the places of education or for conflict resolution or, you know, sometimes they had the traditional medicine there. And all that we kind of ignored for a long time or thought it was not so central. And then over these decades, we've begun to realize there's a reason that it's Buddha, Dharma and Sangha as well. That community is incredibly important for us, um, and then how to how to support a, a, our connection to a, a living community.
2: So Jack is describing what are known as the three refuges in the Buddhist teaching: the Buddha, um, not as a kind of supernatural being, but as an exemplar of a human being uh, who could be free, just as we can. And the Dharma, the teachings, or um, the laws of nature, the truth of things. And then Sangha, S A N G H A, means community of various kinds. It could be the community transcending time and space, you know, the community of like minded people who, from the beginning of time, have left home perhaps or left the conventional and the convenient in order to seek a deeper truth. Um, the community of those who have realized some truth and been able to transmit it in some way in the community of all of us who practice together. So it has lots of different, different layers of meaning. So, um, back to what you're saying, Jack, I think that for me a lot of what happened was that I took certain things for granted. You know, I think that some of the really precious and beautiful blessings of say my time in India was community, but it was unspoken. It was just there, you know, we were, we are practicing. It was so exciting. I look back, at almost 50 years and we're more than 50 years now. And, uh, think, wow, you know, I remember coming out of a sitting in the meditation hall and it was like, so exciting. Cause there'd been like tingling in my upper lip or something with my breath. And it was so exciting, all of it. And, and because of that tremendous sense of learning and opening and, and growing, you know, some of the physical hardships, which were very real, um, we're okay. You know, we just, we just were there, and we had to deal with that, and so we did. But um, the joy was tremendous, and, and we had each other. And, uh, and in those days, of course, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. There were no faxes. There was nothing. And so um, in a way, we had a funny reliance on one another. If you wanted to go visit a teacher of a different lineage, you know, how did you even find out they existed? Well, somebody told you, you know, and they said, well, I'm going there next week. or That's how I ended up in that retreat. You know, it was a Dan Goleman was giving up a, a talk at this international yoga conference in New Delhi in late 1970. And he said, I'm going to a retreat, you know, that is going to be in this town called Bodh Gaya and it's taught by this, this man, S.N. Goenka. And there it was, you know, so, um, and I remember there were so few books in English in those days, and we would each have our own, like, notebook. And if you heard a passage where a teacher said something exciting or you felt something exciting, you'd write it down, you know. It so was all, like, sharing those notebooks with one another. And so, um you know, and then coming back to the States and and finally realizing I was going to be here and teaching in the States, it didn't really – occurred to me that you know people were so often phenomenally lonely here that maybe they were interested in meditation which was not that common in those days and they were working at some job where they were asked to tell a bunch of lies or or hurt people in some way and um, there was a kind of moral injury around that and they had no one to talk to about that or they were taking care of an aging parent or uh they were in a difficult relationship and they didn't know who to share that with or how they could within the context of their meditation. They may well have had other groups that were very supportive. um, But within that context of using those tools, it was not there. And I just thought it was there somehow. And it, it was like a big wake up call to realize, oh, that's not here for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Well, we were very fortunate. In that we had our own community of teachers and 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 people who were helping organize the retreat and take care of it and so forth. We actually became a community in a way um, that supported us trying to figure out how to teach mm-hmm. and be with mm-hmm. folks. Um, and it's it, it is it's so important. I'm thinking about Trudy, my beloved, my wife, and you know, colleague Dharma teacher who founded Inside LA. And one of the things of many that they've done there is they had a program um, for the people who worked in the neonatal ICU, the NICU, first at children's hospitals and then more broadly, primarily nurses and doctors. And they would come on a series of retreats um, that weren't just silent They would sit to make the place of compassion and mindful presence alive for them. And then they would take time to talk to each other. Um, And it was so poignant because, as one of the nurses said, there's so much to do there and so many things to tend to um, that if a child dies, um, we ought to almost immediately go on to the next child. Mm. Um, and we don't have a chance to process it or talk about it, really, you know. And you can't go home if you have a child who dies every week or two, because that happens in the NICU. There's, you mm. know, hundreds of young children. You can't talk about that to civilians, so to speak, to other people. And finally, they had both the element of meditation, of presence, and mindfulness, and compassion, and with it, the time to tell each other their stories and listen and say, how are you holding this? How do we do this together? And this Mm. is kind of an example of the depth of one, one dimension of the depth that having community can offer us. Um, And in some way um, we all need that. And that becomes an, you know, an important part of the journey. And as you say, it was almost, you didn't have to think about it when you were in India and we didn't think about it as much cause we were together hanging out with our mm-hmm. colleagues. Um, but it turned out that the students who would come for 10 days, they needed, um, in some way they also need, we all need this. Um, and it's one of the reasons, it's something I've become more and more interested in. And of course, it got accelerated by the pandemic and the fact that we can at least make a some dimension of online community um, and that's felt really important it's partly why Tara Brock and I started this company cloud Sangha um, which offers groups for people weekly groups where you meet regularly with a teacher or someone who facilitates it some of them just generally on meditation and how you're living and practicing or some specific themes you can be in a group focused on mindful parenting or grieving or managing stress and anxiety or things like that. One of the most wonderful things um, is to see how much people learn from each other. And of Mm -hmm. course, Sharon, you know that as well as I, when we do group meetings with students or used to call them interviews at retreats, not just the individual ones, um, sometimes someone will say, you know, this is happening, you're going through this. And then you can say to the group, you might say to them first, what have you learned about how to deal with this, which is a, always a good response because they have their inner wisdom that gets then activated. But then you turn to the group and say, well, what have you learned about this? And there's an incredible, beautiful collective wisdom, the ways we learn from each other.
2: Well, it's such a tremendous way of keeping it real. You know, like I can remember um, some years ago I was uh, teaching a series of classes on um, kind of uh, compassion in action. And one of the things I wanted to do was create a possibility for people to just be truthful and share with one another. You know, like I was asked to do this thing and I got really scared or, you know. I fell into this place of feeling I just wasn't ever doing enough and I had to stop, I had to step back or, or something like that. And I think it was a really beautiful aspect because these values, compassion and love and service and generosity, you know, they're so strong and they can also be seen as, um, so a kind of idealistic and abstract and something that we continually judge ourselves against and, and realizing like, Oh, I'm not the only one, you know? I'm not the only one yeah. who's meditating. I'm not the only one who is struggling in these ways, and I'm hoping, just as another note, that you have uh, some kind of groups in Cloud Song about sharing joy or you know the good news or something like that. Yes, there is. there's a
1: joy group, absolutely, and of course our dear friend James Barris has his own whole yeah. joy industry, if you will, and it's fabulous. So yes, there's a joy group, and and it's true we can sort of focus. It can start to feel like. A grim duty to meditate, and the point is that actually it should bring a sense of well-being. And you, even if you're going through hard things, somehow the joy that the heart is big enough to hold all this, the space of awareness, loving awareness, is big enough to hold all this, and you become, you know, Kuan Yin, the holder of compassion, or the Buddha, holding all this from a place of love, um, and instead of just being identified with the struggle and the suffering of it.
2: So maybe you can run me through um, like a sample group, you know, because I just looked it up, uh, Sung on their website. I looked it up on the web and it was uh, different than I thought it was going to be. I hadn't realized that there were all these specific topics as well as kind of more general groups. And what would it be like, like if I registered for everyday mindfulness, for example?
1: So um, this is a new dimension in the last couple of months. We originally had groups that met with a teacher, and there were groups of the size of about eight or 10 people. Many people have been in them for a year or more and really connect. Um, And there isn't a particular theme for those groups. It's how are you practicing this week? What are you learning? What are your difficulties? What are the great lessons or ahas? And people start to share and learn a little bit from the teacher, of course, but they really learn from each other. And that kind of bonding makes a huge difference. We get so lonely and isolated often in in our meditation because we don't have anybody else to talk to about it. And it also sort of made the people feel, I don't know how to say it, more responsible because they'd be checking in with each other every week. So they actually practiced more and it just made everything deeper um, and more alive. It's been wonderful. The shift to these topic groups, um, which are actually smaller, we start in those with a, with a very large group that, you know, might be 40 or 50 people and a teacher giving, you know, five or 10 minutes of, some Dharma or some wisdom teachings or compassion teachings. Here are things to remember or reflect on. For example, if you chose a parenting group, here's a principle you might think about. And then most of that hour for that week, you're in a small group of six people with a facilitator or a teacher. And it might be uh, the theme of, um, what do you do when you feel impatient with your child? In the parenting group. And it's so rich then to have that conversation. And then to be able to come back a week later and say, well, this is what happened. This is what I learned. And maybe for that month, you're looking at the impatience as a parent or the, you know, the hopes and fears you hold as a parent or whatever issues around setting limits. Um, Mm -hmm. And for that month, that conversation just gets deeper and richer. And you really talk about how you're practicing with it when you bring compassion to yourself and, you know, your children, or again, if it's a different theme like grief or stress and anxiety or the theme of joy, what develops that joy? How do you sustain it? How do you share it? So I hope this describes it somewhat. And do
2: you, do you sit together? I mean, you know, cause it's not, it's different than other groups you might be part of, right? That,
1: Yes, you sit just just a few minutes together, and Cloud Sangha has all these ancillary things that you Mm -hmm. can do. So there are a number of sittings every week. You can just join and sit with others. And there are teachings every week that are given to all the members that you can drop in for, things like that.
2: So I was curious about how one joins like um can you join just for a month and try it out or do you have to
1: join the minimum is i'm not sure if the minimum now is either four weeks or eight weeks Mm -hmm. probably you can join for just a month maybe for two months and there's also a sliding scale so that pretty much anybody can afford. it goes down to ten dollars a month so Mm -hmm. pretty much anybody could afford it goes starts at like 40 some dollars you know and goes down to ten dollars a month um so it's it's meant to be really accessible for folks um and you know it's something that we're really learning about there is so much isolation you talked about it when we were preparing for this podcast Mm -hmm. about the kind of you and Lily the kind of isolation that got exaggerated Mm -hmm. during the pandemic but that's really been here you know it's like everybody's heard the that um, the English Parliament created the uh, the Minister of Loneliness for the UK, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that in some way we're really trying to learn how to be where people are, which is a lot online these days because of the pandemic and the way things have shifted, and how to make a heartfelt community. And as we learn it, then also it spreads and other people do it. So. But community, making community online is not that easy. You know, if you have groups and they're not led by somebody who's thoughtful, then they also can kind of devolve into, into conflict and that all kind of thing has been seen. So we're active, we've we got a recipe that seems to be really helping people.
2: So if I join uh, for two months, I can go to as many groups as I like? Is that how it works? Yes,
1: yes it is such a deal well,
2: for every you. time I go to yeah.
1: a, it's like it's like the bank or you go on the buffet yes you have a main yeah. main group that you choose but you can do all kinds of other groups too yep
2: and so if I go to the grief and sorrow group there may always be different people in it right because
1: yes then it would be other people
2: yeah yeah I'm just trying to feel out the the texture and the nature of of this belonging
1: yeah um, and it's interesting Because it also, part of the reason that, you know, we ask for four weeks or eight weeks, I'm not sure what it is, is that it takes a few times before you start to say, oh, there's that person I saw. And, oh, I heard her voice or his voice. And then you start to feel like, oh, yeah, I know these people a bit. And they start to know you. And then something changes. Something kind of beautiful happens as we get to know each other a little bit and get connected.
2: All of these experiences are live, right? They're not going to be recorded so I can listen to it at midnight or something when I'm still awake.
1: That's correct. No, they're live. The groups, you know, they're not recorded. And I think people would be uncomfortable if they were Mm -hmm. recorded. So we really want to make a, we have agreements, of course, but we really want to make it as safe as possible for folks. And, you know, there are, I mean, there's live sittings where people sit together or where there's a sitting and a teacher giving a bit of teaching, but for the groups themselves, they're live. And there's a bunch of different times, so you can find one that fits into your schedule. Mm -hmm. Great. This is one of the themes in your new book, Real Life, Mm -hmm. where you talk about moving from isolation to connection. And I know it's been so important for you, and I think about the activist work you've been doing you know, in those places where there's been school violence, for example, or things like that. And your devotion to bringing people together so that they can learn, how, we can learn, you know, yeah. how to hold ourselves, um, even going through very hard times.
2: Well, a lot of it is, I think, reflected in what you're saying about Trudy and um, just the work of people who in many ways are on the front lines of suffering and Something I discovered that I was kind of amazed by, um, many years ago, I was part of the uh, initial work that the Garrison Institute was doing, bringing tools of yoga and meditation to domestic violence, shelter workers, to frontline workers. And, um, you know, we we really tried to have at least two people from each shelter so that somebody wouldn't be all alone. But isolation was was sort of a characteristic of their lives, not just because of keeping client confidentiality, but because they felt like I can't bring those stories home. You know, they're too hard and I've got a partner, I've got children, I've got another whole thing going. This is too much suffering to bring into the room. And, and they didn't tend to talk to one another, which was astonishing. And I think that's a pattern that is repeated with physicians, for example. Um, And so many people who are, kind of confronting a lot of, a lot of difficulty. And, uh, and that's been important to observe. And certainly with communities of uh, survivors of gun violence, I feel like I, you know, my contribution was basically finding the place and, you know, doing the invites and, and, uh, leading a few sittings, but is really the gift they give to one another. That is the most significant thing. And, um, of course, we see that again and again. And so I think especially when you're dealing with a kind of pain or, or suffering that it feels like the world is not telling you, you're right on. You know, they're saying, buck up or get back in control or it's been long enough or, you know, what do you mean? You know, like you should be getting more than you're giving or, or all kinds of things. Or so we tell ourselves that. And um, it seems very important to have that that sense of community
1: yeah i'm I'm thinking about uh both the kind of groups Cloud Sangha has and what you're talking about um the culture has these ideas that you should just you know hold it in keep a stiff upper lip move move along you know hold it, but it gets it, you know it it gets carried in the heart yeah. it gets carried in the body Vibhag Murthy, who you know our surgeon general said that um the majority, more than half of what comes through the doors in our hospitals and clinics, is as physical ailment is actually emotionally based, mm. and, and we know this. We carry, you know, the fear whether it's around the, the big ones of global warming and you know systemic racism or economic injustice or those kind of things, but also in our own lives, the way the society set up, we're we're isolated how will I handle my old age? Or what if I have an accident and do I have enough money? Or what about my children doing this or that or whatever? And we don't have people really often to, to talk about it with. And there's something so beautiful in the principles, the simple principles of mindful self-compassion, which sort of has grown out of your work, Sharon and mine, and that great tradition of kind of helping people feel compassion for themselves. But they talk about common humanity, which is part of what happens. people realize, oh, it's not just me. It's not me that's worried about money, but it's the social structure around or worried about my community or my children being safe or whatever. And then the practices of compassion, how to actually shift from judgment or expectation that it should be different or blame or something um, to actually holding our human incarnation, this circumstance with compassion. Mm. You know? And and not trying to well the point isn't to perfect yourself or find the right solution, the perfect solution, but it's to perfect your love and your your presence and your in some way to be able to find a way to be connected and and loving in the midst of this, um, becomes a great gift. Well, as you say, the subtitle of my new book, uh,
2: the book, the title is real life and the subtitle is the journey from isolation to openness and freedom. And, um, the sort of basic dynamic I was working off of with the book, um, was one that is symbolically exemplified in, uh, the story of the Passover Seder and uh, where the word Egypt, this take this totally away from geopolitics, but the word Egypt really means a narrow place, uh, the narrow straits. And so it's like a, a state of being uh, contracted, feeling trapped, being trapped. And it's the journey from that state and into a, a place of openness and connection and expansiveness and freedom. Like it's like, Oh, finally I can breathe, you know, finally I'm free. And so, uh, the word contraction is not a very popular word. It was hard to use in a way that made sense. And so, uh, really looking, especially at our time when, you know, so many people have gone through, um, if not physical isolation, cause they were going out to work every day, a kind of isolation, in the shattering of the norms that we've just basically been through. Um, And isolation is, is sort of the perfect example of a full on experience. Like, yeah, you know, I read those chats when I'm doing zoom teaching and uh, it was amazing. The things people would put in there, including the one, one of them I will never forget, which was, I'm a resident in a nursing home. I haven't had a visitor in a year. Mm. And, you Mm. know, one way or another, you know, maybe people were working and they were living with their families so they weren't all alone um, as other people were. But, you know, even not being all alone, maybe your church or your synagogue was shut down or your Buddhist retreat center was shut down as we all were you know and and you didn't have that kind of reviving sense of these are the people i come together in in ritual and presence and uh have a better week because of it it's like it was gone unless you were doing it online and mm. so um i think the need for that kind of connection became ever more apparent
1: and did you have then as a response um Guidance for people in how to rebuild it?
2: Well, I, you know, um, as you know, I'm a great fan of loving kindness meditation. Because even like looking at the work of um, the Surgeon General before the pandemic, you know, and looking at um, reading clinical studies about different conditions that would be affected toward the good if people had more connection, more of a sense of connection. I kept thinking, well, it can't just be a numbers game. Like I only got two friends, I need eight. You know, it really can't be just that because as you know, we all know people who were kind of profoundly in solitude, but not feeling that kind of disconnect. And so I kept thinking it must be an inner sense of connection, which is certainly supported by the external connections. Um, but it's supported by meaningful connection, even if it's not group of friends, you know, intimate friends, whatever it is. So um, to have that inner sense allows for the meaningful connection. And for me, that would come back to actually doing a practice like loving kindness and, and uh, paying attention to people. You know, all the people we tend to look through rather than at as we encounter them in our day or that we neglect to thank, you know, the bus driver, or whomever. Um, there are ways of having these kind of micro connections that are very real. And so I think if we bring those into our lives as well as a kind of practice, it can make a difference. And, um, and also realizing, you know, that all those feelings and, and what is, you know, seeming to be a real difficulty for a lot of people these days in mental health it's a natural thing. I mean, look at what happened, you know? And, uh, somebody wants to find trauma as a, a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance.
1: Mm.
2: You know, so whether the abnormal circumstance is like grinding poverty that goes on and on or, uh, something sudden and abrupt, um, we're having not such a bizarre reaction to it when we freeze or we, whatever we might do, sort of a traumatic way. And, Um, To understand that, yeah, that makes sense, that we feel everything that we're feeling. I think that's very important, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've actually shifted my language somewhat these days from trauma to just simply suffering, which is Uh in the Buddhist teaching, the first noble truth, because it's not new. And sometimes when you use the word trauma, at least I found, people think that there's something wrong with them, and then they have to fix it. Uh-huh. When in fact, we have, we have a certain measure of suffering and we have to both come to tend it, to hold it with compassion, come to terms with it in a very tender and honorable way. And then realize that that's not the end of the story. That when uh-huh. Nelson Mandela walked out of Robben Island prison after 27 years with such magnanimity and compassion that they can imprison your spirit imprison your body, but not your spirit. But anyway, a a few things just that you said, I love the micro connections and, you know, the inward practice when people have states that are difficult, like loneliness, um, or, you know, grief and things like that, but especially loneliness, um, You can actually locate, well, where do you feel it in your body as you pay attention? And then you can invite it to open, to say, all right, let me feel how big this loneliness is. Actually give it space, which is kind of holding it with loving awareness, mindful loving awareness. And when you allow intense feelings like that to open, see how big they are, they open and open and then something interesting happens because it starts to shift or become more ephemeral. Um, and then there becomes space around it. And it starts to shift somehow. People experience it as going from loneliness to being alone. Mm-hmm. And there's a real difference between alone, loneliness and, and being alone. Um, or holding it with compassion. Here's the state and lonely and when did you first feel it? Okay, I've felt it for since I was young and whatever. And you hold that child in your heart with compassion and do the metta, as you said. And somehow you also become a friend to yourself. Mm. Um, and when you have, then you look at other people with different eyes. You see somebody who doesn't have a home, you know, on the street or something. And it's not so much them, but your eyes, Oh yeah, this is our human incarnation. And it, it tenderizes the heart, and I, I love for myself. I'm a kind of impatient person. You know me, so you've seen it, <laughs> speed freak in some ways, and so I get impatient when I'm trying to get something done or go somewhere, and then things impede. The car in front of me is too slow, and the people on the sidewalk are you know not making space, and I can notice the irritation. And then I look at the actual individuals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And with that looking, I also look at, I love doing this. Um, what did they look like when they were five years old?
2: Mm.
1: And my heart instantly softens and I go, oh, there was that innocent little boy or that, you know, earnest little girl. Um, and I love them. And the whole thing changes and it becomes part of my loving kindness compassion practice and they feel like more like we're in it together and so this is one of my ways of doing what you suggested of kind of keeping this practice of loving kindness and connection together.
2: Well I think what you said is really important and it's something I tried to emphasize in the book you know that I wrote because well everything we all write but you know this most recent book for me and Um, Because we can feel that contraction. We can feel the loneliness and just endlessly put ourselves down for it. And what you said earlier about uh, kind of mindful self-compassion is really important. Learning how to be with those very states in a way that isn't just going to deepen the entrapment. And that happens also because of dislike. I hate what I'm feeling. I'm ashamed of it. I'm afraid of it. That doesn't help. You know, it's too bad because it comes so readily, but it really doesn't help. You know, finding that uh, skill really of not being overcome by a state and yet not pushing against it is what a good deal of mindfulness training is about. And it really frees us to experience everything in in a very different way. And and we do that also with one another, I think, in a, a very significant way and it's lovely to imagine all these people is five years old and kind of cute and uh, doing the best that they can. Yeah, I had a very it, funny memory listening to you, Jack, um, because I think we come to a place with ourselves to where we realize some of these forces in the mind, they're just habits and and they come together in a certain way and they may come together in a different way for other people, but there's a, a kind of, uh, uh, almost like an impersonality in uh, in that observation, instead of taking everything to heart. Like I'm this kind of person and you're that kind of person. And the memory was about um, way back when, you know, we'd be teaching a retreat together and they all had a certain start date and end date, you know, maybe 10 days or something like that. And this was before any of the centers, the insight meditation society or spirit rock were opened up. So everything was, in some rented facility, Girl Scout camp or, a, you know, whatever, and, of varying qualities. And we'd come together for those 10 days, this group of people and someone cooking. And, uh, it was this amazing thing because we would create a universe all together of shared values and, uh, shared investigation and support for one another. And then it would end. And, I would always, uh, as far as I remember say, Let's stay for lunch. Maybe, you know, maybe others would stay for lunch. Like it doesn't really uh-huh. have to end. Can we hold on? And you would say, Let's uh-huh. get out of here, <laughs> you know. Let's yeah. go right away. Let's have lunch somewhere else. And I would go, But couldn't we stay a while? And you go, No, let's go. Uh-huh. And Sweet. we were just both reacting to kind of lost in a very uh-huh. different way.
1: Well, and we created, someone called them sudden communities where people come together and they set up a tent and they do something that's really heart-to-heart with one another and it is meaningful and it's hard then to let go of it. One of the things that I see related to what we're talking about and and the teachings that you're, you know, or wisdom that you're sharing about people finding inner ways to start to connect through doing loving kindness and maybe also small acts and various things. So at the end of the day, you kind of look back and say, well, you know, I picked that trash off the street or I, you know, waved to my neighbor the tiniest little things, but to look for as many opportunities for connection or moments of goodness um, and start to realize that you are connected in ways that you hadn't noticed and when you're not quite so in your own feelings about things, Mm -hmm. um, is that there's an innate wisdom that I love to respect in people um, and to see. And and you know it as well. So that in groups, and again, this sort of goes back to cloud sangha as one of its elements, but in many groups, when I ask in a group, what, what have people learned about this? Whatever subject or question... All kinds of wisdom pours out. Mm-hmm. Or if I turn to an individual who, you know, says, oh, I feel trapped or I'm lonely or I'm grieving. And I say, All right, let's practice together. Close your eyes and, you know, get quiet and develop some presence as we do together, or loving awareness. And I'll say, what is the wisest part of you say about how to manage this loneliness or this grief or this anger, and as Zen master Sansanim used he used to look at us and say, "You already understand, and these beautiful teachings will come out of people from another part of them that they forgot to access. Um, you know, or what would the wisest teacher you know you know say about this loneliness or fear or anxiety or whatever? and amazing beautiful teachings come out of their mouth <laughs> mm-hmm. and then just pause and say yeah some part of you knows this now what how how do you actually then bring this alive um, where you mm-hmm. are cuz you already do understand and that's a beautiful thing to see to see you know you talk about freedom in your book that people are free when they mm-hmm. tune in nice
2: So I'm wondering, Jack, if you can um, lead us in some kind of practice.
1: I'd be happy to. And um, just kind of closing as well, I've just, you know, I love you dearly. And it's, it's a treat to be able to talk about these things that are real for all of us. As, you know, in our human incarnation in these times, which are so fragmented, I hope Cloud Sangha is helpful to a number of you who listen, just go to cloudsangha.co. But more importantly, I hope you listen inside to that that wisdom that helps you navigate this world and tend yourself and the things around you beautifully. So to meditate together, let your eyes close gently, find a seat or a posture, some way where you're reasonably comfortable And then allow your eyes to close gently and take a couple of long breaths. And now with loving awareness, with mindful loving awareness, Notice the state of your body, how it actually feels, the whole field of it, areas of warmth or cool, or pleasure or tightness or pain, openness. Notice the energetic feel of your body. with a real kindness, mindful, loving awareness, a loving awareness of this remarkable human body. And breathing gently, notice how much your body has been carrying of difficulty or stress With great tenderness, and wrap this whole body with compassion, this vehicle of your body. Tender compassion for all you carry, body. And if you could make an inner bow, say, Thank you. Thank you for carrying so much. To your body, thank you for carrying everything you do, for the joys and the painful parts. Thank you. And then say, I'm okay just now. I'm okay just where I am. Thank you. You can relax. I'm okay. And notice what happens when you say thank you for caring so much. You can relax, I'm okay. Let the body soften and open, steady, gracious. And now move your attention to your heart. This heart, which carries so much longing and love and tears and grief and excitement and delight. Anxiety weightiness the excitement and joy. There are the burdens and the difficulties that your heart carries, the things you care about that are hard or that have been hard. And the beautiful longings and love And wrap your heart again with compassion and loving awareness. Just hold it. Oh, you carry so much. Your dear heart, you carry so much. Let me just hold you in compassion, kindness, appreciation. Then say, thank you. Thank you, dear heart, for carrying so much. You can relax. I'm okay just now, in the present moment. I'm okay. You can relax. Notice what happens when you say thank you with compassion. You can relax. Now bring the same tender loving awareness to your mind, that busy factory that streams nonstop thoughts and images and plans and ideas, and worries, and scenarios, and memories, and how much, how busy the mind is. You can feel the whole busyness of it. It's a field of the busy mind. wrap this busy mind with compassion. Hold it kindly. It's doing its best. just hold it, and as if you could bow to it, say, thank you for all you do for trying to keep me safe. I'm okay just now. You can relax. Thank you, mind, for trying to take care of me and keep me safe. So busy. You can relax. I'm okay now just where I am. And finally, as the body and heart and mind are invited to relax, thank you for all you carry, for taking care of me, I'm okay just now. Notice that you have become the mindful, loving witness of it all. You are not the body. You are the awareness of the body. You're not all the emotions, the joys and sorrows, feelings, love and loneliness. You become the loving awareness, the witness of it. You're not all the thoughts and images and memories. But what's happened is you've become the field of awareness itself, what Ajahn Chah called the one who knows. You are the loving awareness itself, spacious and peaceful and timeless. This is your home. This is your true home. Consciousness was born into this body and will leave it. You're not the body or emotions or thoughts. You are the consciousness itself. Rest in it, peaceful, timeless. And let the well-being of this gratitude to body, heart, and mind and the resting in consciousness itself continue now. Even as you open your eyes, In the field of loving awareness. So thank you, Sharon.
2: Thank you so much, both for the meditation and for for being here all together.
1: It is a pleasure, my dear. We've been uh, doing this dance for a long time, and Um, I'm really, really grateful. You've taught me so much. And you've saved my life a number of times.
2: Well, thank you. I'd say the same to you. So here's to the next 50.
1: <laughs> Onward with joy. Okay. Take care.
0: Okay. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Jack Cornfield's work, his many offerings... Or just to hang out with him a little bit more, you can visit his website, which is jackcornfield.com. J A C K K O R N F I E L D.com. And if you're interested in checking out the Cloud Sangha, you can visit their website, which is cloudsangha.co. Cloud C L O U D. Sangha, S A N G H A dot co. So, thanks for listening. And as always, if you want to hear more episodes or just check out some of the things that we're up to in Sharon's Land, you can visit Sharonsalzburg.com. There's also a free meditation there if you'd like to join our mailing list. And as always, sending you off with a little bit of loving kindness. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease.